0: For us, Father, we ask, like we always do, that you would be happy to use this word, this teaching, this parable that we have read and heard together about wisdom and foolishness, about waiting, about a delay. Father, that you would use this story that Jesus told to draw us closer to him, to show us his grace more clearly. Father, we ask that you would meet those of us here um, who feel far from you, Um, those of us who feel that you are distant from us. Meet those of us who who feel near to you, who are hungry and thirsty and ready to hear. Father, meet every one of us where we are and show us the grace of Jesus and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I I have a friend who once picked up his daughter from a birthday party. This was several years ago, and his daughter was about seven or eight years old. And when she got into the car, she was overflowing with joy and happiness, and she told her dad that I had the best time at that party. And it was evident on her face. Uh, But as they kept on driving and got closer to, to their home... Uh, she got quiet and quieter and quieter, and she seemed to be sad. And so my friend noticed that about her, and he asked her about it, and her response was to ask her dad a question. She said, Dad, why did the party have to end? <laughs> That's a heavy question. <laughs> And I think we all know what she means when she asked that question. I mean, she wasn't necessarily asking about the stop time of that particular party. We know that she was asking something deeper than that. Something like, why can't I always feel the joy that I felt at that party? Why can't it always be like that? Well, my friend knew what his daughter meant, but he didn't quite know how to answer her. He didn't know really what to say to her. And so he called another mutual friend of ours who happened to be a pastor. And when when this pastor heard the question, he chuckled a little bit, as was his way. And then he said, she's sad uh, because we are hardwired for the greatest party of all time. And when we get a foretaste of it, it hurts us (laughs) at a very fundamental level because all of those foretastes are a dilution of the real thing, and they end. (laughs) I've always loved that answer. (laughs) And one of the reasons that I've loved it is because it is true to me in my own lived experience. It's true, I think, for all of us. And the premise to that answer also happens to be the beating heart of the parable that we just read together. That we are hardwired for the greatest party of all time. We're hardwired for it. We are headed to it. But we are not there yet. So how are we supposed to live right now in the present? Well, Jesus has a parable for people like us. This uh, parable is built around an image that looms large in a lot of Jesus' parables. It's an image that is so central to Jesus' teaching that the rest of the New Testament writers take that image and they run with it like they're being chased. The image that Jesus builds this story around is not just a party. It is the party. A huge wedding feast. The non-stop party to end all parties. He is building it around the party. The party that... All of the parties that we've ever gone to, all of the parties that we've ever thrown are pointers to. It is the party that happens at the end of time. It's the one that the Apostle John named the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's what Jesus is talking about in verse 1 when he says, Then the kingdom of heaven is going to be like this. The kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. What Jesus is talking about is the final procession, the last colorful movement in a wedding celebration right before the party starts. Now, of course, we don't do weddings like they did in first century Judean villages. So let me explain what's going on as best as I understand it. I mean, in and around the places where Jesus hung out, most... Uh, Village wedding ceremonies included the whole village, and they could go on sometimes for days. And every local place had their own kind of take on how things should go down, but the main story was pretty much always the same. The, The vows, the nuptials, the ceremony, it would take place at the bride's home in the morning or in the midday. And then after that was over, the bride and her family would stay there and everyone else would scatter to other celebrations, to do other things. And then the groom and his family would go to prepare for the big party. They would go to prepare uh, for the wedding feast. They would do that at their house. um, Or if the groom had enough money, they would uh, do it at his new home. So they prepare and then... Sometime after sunset, the bridegroom would strut out to get his bride. He would go to where she was to bring her to the party. It was a big, beautiful parade, and that's where the virgins and their lamps come in. They're kind of like what we call bridesmaids, and they had one job. Their job was to go with the bridegroom and light the procession's way to get the bride and then light the procession's way back to the big feast and to the big party. It's a pretty beautiful, beautiful job that they had. An amazing celebration. So I think it's good for us to stop for a second and to reflect because Jesus, of course, is not just talking about wedding parties to talk about wedding parties. He said, this this is what the kingdom is like. This is what the rule of God is like. And so, of course, we need to remember that Jesus sets this story up to teach us a couple things. And I think one of the most important things in this story is that Jesus is teaching us that all of history and all of human life, your life and mine, it is not going around in circles. He is teaching us that the story of God and the world is headed somewhere. It has a beginning and it has a middle and it has an end. Now, most of the people that were listening to Jesus tell the story would have taken that picture of how the world works and history works and how our lives fit into it. They would have taken it for granted that that's, that's the case. We don't often think in those terms, and so it's good to be reminded. I mean, Jesus is saying underneath all of it that the God who created the world in peace and in beauty and justice, that God means to remake the world in peace and in beauty and injustice, that is the place to which the long, beautiful story of God and His world is headed. That's the target to which the arrow is flying, and it will definitely hit the bullseye. <laughs> and church, that's the central hope of Advent. <laughs> and like I said last week, it is an ironclad inevitability. It will happen. And that is absolutely true. To enter back into the language of the parable, the bridegroom is definitely going to go get his bride and bring her to the party. And that big party, it is definitely going to happen. No question. And so part of you and I growing up as Christian people, part of us maturing in our faith that we have been called into is to understand that part of our life in the present is preparing for that moment when the big party starts. Part of what we do now is think about that time when we will be at the party to end all parties. Of course we don't live there now. We live, as Fleming Rutledge writes, between things the way they are and things the way that they ought to be. Right? We see peace, we see beauty, we see justice. It's true, but we see it in fits and starts. We see little glimmers of peace or beauty or justice around. But most of the time, if we're being honest, a lot of what we see is the opposite of those things. We see chaos, we see ugliness, we see injustice. People like you and me, we live with broken and breaking relationships. People like us live with frustrated hopes, addictions. We live with distractions and diseases. Our, our bodies don't work the way that they should. Our minds don't work the way that they should. Our politics does not work the way that it should. Our courts do not work the way that they should. The list is long. And the question is, how do we live faithfully now in this tension? between things as they are and things as they ought to be? Well, that that's the question that Jesus is trying to answer with this story about the bridesmaids. Five of them were foolish, Jesus says, and five of them were wise. And here's how you can tell the difference between the two of them. The foolish ones just took their lamps, but the wise ones took flasks of oil with their lamps. It's not exactly the accessory that you want to lug around at a wedding party, but that's what they did. Now, when Jesus divides that bridal party in half using the categories of foolish and wise, he is, again, saying something that the people listening to him would have just taken for granted. And that is that he is tapping into a stream of teaching that runs straight through Scripture from the beginning to the end. It gets its most prominent treatment in the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job and a bunch of the Psalms. Jesus is drawing on the wisdom literature and the wisdom tradition of the Old Testament. We heard one of them this morning from Proverbs 3. This is what Proverbs 3 said, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. That is a gorgeous, succinct summary of the way that the Bible talks about wisdom. Wisdom is built by God into the fabric of the world, into the grain of the world. He knows how this world works best. He knows what it takes to make human beings flourish. And so if people like us want to taste that flourishing, if we want to experience the flourishing that we were made for, if we want to spread that human flourishing out into the world, then we will walk not against the grain of the world, but with it, in wisdom. And if we do that, like Proverbs 3 says, we won't stumble and our sleep will be sweet. And by contrast, of course, is the way of foolishness, which in the book of Proverbs always leads to regret and misery and trouble. So you hear that and you think, well, I'm for sure going to choose to walk in the way of wisdom with the grain of the world as God made it. And that decision to choose between those two is the whole point of the book of Proverbs. And the difference between the foolish and the wise in that literature is very clear. It's very simple to understand how you can know if you're one or the other. The fool does not think past the end of his nose. The fool is always making choices based on what looks good in the moment, whatever is in front of him in the moment, whatever he thinks might be able to work, maybe. But the wise person is constantly, constantly thinking past the end of her nose. The most important point of reference in the wise person's life is never to just what is in front of her in that moment, Instead, her whole life is lived in reference to God and who he is and what he might have her do in the present. In the literature, that's the beginning of wisdom, and everything finds its proper place in a life lived in wisdom. Those are the categories, church, that Jesus is using, and it's important for us to understand that because he's not just telling stories. (laughs) He is teaching us. He is telling us the story. So Jesus, as he often does in a parable, introduces the conflict in verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. The main character in the story, the character who's driving the action, the character that everyone is responding to in this story, is missing. He has been delayed. He is nowhere to be seen. Jesus tells a bunch of parables with this in it. Where the main actor has been gone for a long time. Sometimes the church calls these parables the parables of the hidden God. The king goes on a journey. The master of the house has business in a far country and goes away. The bridegroom is delayed at another venue before the party. His whereabouts are a mystery. The time of his arrival is unknown, (laughs) and I hope it's obvious, church, but I I just want to say it. This is the world we live in. This is our world, living between things the way they are and things that they ought to be waiting. Jesus is telling us this story. And what Jesus is teaching people like us is—that that it is precisely in this moment, it is precisely in this lived experience that wisdom is really required. The advent waiting that you and I do in the face of injustice and darkness and chaos. The advent waiting that we do, waiting to be renewed and made right and put aside that thing that we want to put aside so badly, this living requires real wisdom. I can try to explain what I mean. If uh, if if there was a lion sitting right there in front of the communion table, <laughs> just a real lion was there, and I said, hey, everybody, you know, watch yourself, be careful, (laughs) because there's a lion there, it would not be hard to do, because we would all be staring at the lion. Every move we make would be in reference to that lion. But if, on the other hand, I told you that five years ago a lion escaped from the Lincoln Park Zoo, and as far as we know, he may be hiding somewhere in the city, and it's been a couple years since anyone's seen him, it would be a lot harder to keep that in mind. It would be hard to keep our movements gauged in reference to the hidden lion. But the wise among us, we would do it. And that's Jesus' point. The wise ones are the ones who live their lives in reference to the God who is certainly going to show up for the party at the end of time, even if they can't see him now. That's wisdom. Living our lives under the gaze and in reference to the God who is definitely going to show up and take his bride to the party, even if we cannot see him in the present. And the foolish... Are the ones who live lives ordered only around what can be seen in the present and experienced and known in the present. So, you know, they're all snoozing. <laughs> and then at midnight comes the cry. Here is the bridegroom come out to meet him and they all excitedly start to wake up and they begin to prepare to meet him. They get their lamps ready and five of them find, much to their chagrin, that they don't have enough oil. It's running low and their lamps are going out. So these five ask the other five for some of the oil from their flasks. And the wise ones say, no way. <laughs> No way. You know, we only have one job, and if we give you some of our oil, then there's a chance that the procession will go some of the way in the dark. That would be a complete bust-out. We're not doing that. Go to the market and get your own oil. And the last we hear of the wise virgins is this. They went in to the marriage feast. All is well with them. So it's good to stop and ask why. I mean, on the surface, of course, it's pretty easy to ask why. They had oil, right? But the oil isn't the point. It is their preparation that's the point. Another way to say it, which I think gets at the point that Jesus is pressing here, is that their preparation was a visible sign of the faith that they had in the bridegroom who was delayed. They knew him they knew he would show up. And that knowing had sunk deep down into who they are. They had faith in the hidden bridegroom and that faith worked itself out in wisdom. Maybe he'll be late, so let's bring some extra oil. Bringing the oil was a natural consequence of a life ordered by faith in the one that they could not see but were sure was coming. And in the end, it's clear they get into the party because they knew the bridegroom and the bridegroom knew them. Which is, of course, precisely why the foolish virgins can't come in after the door is shut. I mean, if the deal was just having some oil, they've got that covered. They went to the midnight market and they got the oil and they're back with oil. But he doesn't say, I'm not letting you in because you don't have oil. He says, truly, I don't know you. And church... This is the uppercut on the mouth in this parable. Jesus' parables always have an uppercut that we don't see coming. And this is the one. In the end, for them, and for me, and for you, what it comes down to is genuinely being in a relationship with the guy who is throwing the party. And to have that knowing. Sink down deep into who we are, into the life of faith, lived out wisely in reference to the God who is coming. You know, do we know Him? (laughs) Do you and I know Him? Do we follow him in repentance and faith? Because to follow him in repentance and faith is to be made into a person who slowly begins to be able to see past the end of their nose. We become a people who do not try to manage the chaos and the ugliness and the injustice that we see all around us and in our own hearts. We don't try to manage that on our own. To follow that God in repentance and faith is to become a people whose first impulse at darkness is not self-righteousness. It's not frantic, scrambling management of situations. It's not hiding. It's not fear. It's not isolating ourselves. We become a people whose first impulse at the darkness is to ask what the God who has come and who is coming might have to say about that darkness and what he has done about that darkness and what he would have people like us faithfully do about it right now. That's a wise people. That's an alert people. That's that's people who are awake. Watch, therefore, Jesus says... For you know neither the day nor the hour. Watch because that party is definitely coming. It will happen. And so I'd I'd need to say, as an epilogue, (laughs) probably mostly for me, but if you're like me at all, maybe you need to hear this too. Because I can hear that story. And my first impulse could be to think of all the ways that I act like a fool. All the ways I hide and isolate and manage in the face of darkness. And I guess it's not all bad to feel that if it leads us to the truth. And church, the truth is Jesus suffers fools gladly he steps in and he gets locked out of the party so that i can go inside that is the meaning of his cross and his resurrection and his ascension for us he steps in and takes the hit so that we can go into the party Church, the people that he loves to the end, you can just read the Gospels and see it over and over and over again. The people that he loves to the end, they are always clowns and cowards and fakes and fools. Jesus forgives fools, church. He makes them new again. And he slowly changes them to look like him. He makes simple people wise And that is the good news of the God that we follow in repentance and faith, the God who is definitely coming to take us to the party that will end all parties. And so, as the song says, rejoice. Rejoice, believers. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you preeminently and prominently that you make simple people wise. That you do not leave us alone. That you have come to us in order to rescue us. Father, help us to be a people who cling to that one who was locked out so that we could get in. Help us to cling to him in faith with everything that we have. Even if it's just one finger we can curl around it. Father, so that we could be redeemed and forgiven and changed and made wise by his gracious working in us through the Spirit. Father, please, please do this for our good and for the good of this broken and dark world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.